verses explain it uh, for this Sunday. The readings, uh, again, are the Old Testament lesson, uh, Genesis chapter 5, and uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and Luke chapter 18. So each of those lessons are speaking in uh, some form or fashion about uh, faith and uh, works. So in Genesis chapter 4, uh, there's an immediate connect in the uh, New Testament with Hebrews chapter 11. So a working uh, principle which is always very, very uh, helpful is that if the Holy Spirit is the author of the scriptures, which the scriptures themselves say that he is, um, then one part of the scripture helps us understand and interpret the other part of the scripture. So scripture will interpret the scripture and the Holy Spirit is the best teacher. And so um, the, the section that we read from Genesis spoke of these sacrifices that two brothers gave. One, um, one was the sacrifice of Abel and one was the sacrifice of Cain. And the question is, so, so why was uh, Abel's sacrifice accepted and uh, Cain's not? Well, it wasn't because of uh, the substance of what they offered, but rather one was offered by faith and the other was um, offered apart from faith. Um, and so one clung to the works of Messiah promised, which would be Abel, and one clung to the works of their own offering, and that would be Cain. So we know that because Hebrews chapter 11 uh, declares it. So Hebrews 11.4 says, by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. So you'll hear that refrain over and over again in Hebrews by faith, you know, by faith and by faith. And so uh, Hebrews 11, that whole listing of men and women who lived by faith uh, should not be confused with, um, oh, they're heroes because they did such great things. No, they did these things flowing out of faith. So by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. And by faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. So this off offering of, of, of Abel was offered uh, in faith. Hebrews 11, uh, verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So there is this difference between doing good things and good works. So uh, everyone can do good things. Even a non-Christian can do good things. But nothing is a good work apart from Christ. In fact, uh, Romans 14 says, anything that uh, is apart from faith is declared to be sin. So it might be the best thing from a human perspective that's done, but if it's not done in faith, what does Romans 14 say? Whatever does not come from faith is, is sin. Now, uh, this also can be very helpful because there are a lot of outward things that we might do um, offering sacrifices, and we'll find it in the gospel. But again, it's always about uh, what does that uh, faith cling to? Is it cling to something that I'm outwardly doing, or is it clinging to the works of another, the works of Jesus? Isaiah 29 says, well, and God, God's eyes are open to this, right? These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, uh, but the text says their hearts are far from me, and their worship uh, of me is made up of only rules taught by men. So, uh, Johann Gerhard, I was reading that uh, about these lessons this week, and he uh, is a Lutheran uh, uh, confessor, 
um, uh, after Martin Luther, and uh, he wrote this nice little sentence, and I think it just sums up kind of the thought for the day really well. He says, we should not think of our good works and boast of them, but rather think of our sins and repent of them. And then he adds a little uh, line, we have more sins than good works. Now, there are good works. I mean, Ephesians 2 says we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. But we should not think of our good works and boast of them, but rather think of our sins and repent of them. And then our hands will be filled with, with good works. So there's this sin, and um, I find sometimes the best way to describe it is to always look, what is at the middle of the word sin? What letter? And what is at the middle of the word pride? So uh, obviously, um, you know, sin is about I and me. Uh, the Lutheran fathers talked about sin as being turned inward upon yourself. Pride is always looking at, at what you have done, right? But faith is always directed outside of itself. Uh, not looking to works. I mean, it is about works here, but we always have to be very, very clear. It's not about our works. It's about the works of Christ. And so sin and pride always look at their own works, but faith redirects the, um, the, the trust, not to something that we outwardly do, but rather to the outward work of our brother, uh, the Lord Jesus. So here's the parable, Luke chapter 18. And I had a professor in the seminary, and what he would do um, before every class, he'd go up to the chalkboard and write three times, context, context, context. And then right underneath that, he would write content, content, content. It was his way of saying, all right, you have to understand the context of uh, the scripture uh, to help understand also the content. And he also applied that to pastoral care as well. Uh, it's best to kind of read what is going on, the context of, of the individual sitting in front of you, hear that story, and then also uh, the content. So here's the context and the content. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. So here's this spiritual pride. So it's pointing towards self, confident of their own righteousness. And righteousness is just a big word for you know, I'm right with God because of something that I have done. Their own righteousness. And usually what happens with that, and, and if you ever encounter a prideful person, or if you find yourself to be prideful, you will be told that, you know, you're looking down on me. Or you feel that the other person sees themselves as better than, better than you. So here's the context, right? Uh, Jesus looks around the crowd and there's individuals who are pointing to their own righteousness, and at the same time, they're looking down on everybody else that's there that's not doing the spiritual things that they're doing. Now, we're going to find that there's some things listed in the Gospel reading uh, called these acts of righteousness. So we have to be careful uh, that we just don't uh, throw away these acts of righteousness and say, oh, they're outward works, so you know, God doesn't you know, command them or desire them or they're not good for you. Well, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So there were three things that Jewish people, uh, people of faith, would always be involved in. It would be their life. And these are not bad things. Trusting in those things is, is where it goes wrong. But 
in and of themselves, the acts of righteousness are not bad things. So the text even says in Matthew 6, so when, so when you give to the needy, and when you pray, and when you fast. So giving to the needy and praying and fasting, these were these spiritual acts, these acts of righteousness, uh, these spiritual, this daily exercise of their faith, in and of themselves, not wrong. But what happens is when all of a sudden your, your direction of the focus for righteousness is turned to those as opposed to the one outside of you, the perfect act of righteousness being Christ, um, that's where it goes wrong. So in the text, these acts of righteousness are being performed. And so again, it's not the acts that are in and of themselves wrong. It is the trust, the confidence, uh, the spiritual pride that goes along with it. So two men go up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stands up and prays. And here's a giveaway about himself. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And so there's those spiritual acts. Now, it's, it's interesting to note that both of these individuals are, we could say, uh, believers. They have faith because they go up to the temple. They all go up to the temple to pray. One is an outwardly religious individual in uh, his life, a Pharisee. The other is despised by the people in his vocation because he's a tax collector. So, you know, the tax collectors had to kind of receive a little bit of a, a stipend for their activity. And so what they would do is they would not only collect the tax, but they would add a little extra. And so uh, the, they were despised. You think of Zacchaeus. Um, and um, so this Pharisee goes up and says, I, I thank you that I am, that I'm not like other men. And he begins to list how he's not like other men. And you hear kind of underneath this, the words of Jesus, you know, if you say, uh, you know, we haven't committed adultery, but you have, you know, lustfully looked at another. Well, so Jesus sees the heart. But this man is pointing outwardly to all of his activity. And they might be good activities, fasting and giving to the, the needy and to pray. Um, but he's putting his trust in that and he's looking down on the tax collector. So Jesus then continues to says, The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, Kyrie eleison. I think I said that right. Uh, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. So he is stripped of all of his uh, righteousness, his own righteousness. He can't even look up to heaven, but he says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus concludes the, the parable by saying, I tell you that this man, this, this one who is standing off to the side at a distance, beating his breast in repentance, crying out for mercy, agreeing with God that he is a sinner, this man, other than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this is hard to hear um, for the human nature, because um, the human nature is blind to these, these things. The heart is deceitful. It's, it's very proud. It doesn't like to be uh, called out. So we need the scriptures, the revelation of God, and uh, in scripture and incarnate in Jesus, um, 
what it what it aims to do is to do two things to crush the pride we hold to our own works hold on to our own works to crush that uh, but always then to point it elsewhere to create faith in the works of Jesus so you could call it law and gospel uh, law crushing right uh, the pride that we have and laying it bare uh, but the gospel coming in and pointing to the works of Christ and giving us faith to cling and to hold on to that. Now, this mind of ours, again, is darkened, and so we need truth, the revelation of God, to speak to it. And then the Holy Spirit comes as the real teacher and revealer and uh, shows us who we are and uh, shows us Christ. So we'll just use the words of Scripture to describe who we are so that there can be no pride here. No spiritual pride. So the scriptures declare this. And this is uh, just the Apostle Paul. Again, he's not making anything up here. If you read in Romans, he's forever quoting the Old Testament. Um, and he says, there's no one righteous. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. No one righteous. We are spiritually blind and foolish. So again, there's a lot of talk these days about being woke, right, and uh, you know, awakened to to uh, certain um, cultural things. But the Bible speaks very clearly about being awakened, um, and in a spiritual way. So again, we have to just let the Scripture speak to us. And tell us how it is. And then, um, by God's grace, our eyes are open to it. But sometimes, you know, our hearts are hardened to it, and we just don't want to don't hear the truth. But here it is. 1 Corinthians 2. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So before, before any uh, ability of ours to... Uh, see rightly about who God is, the Holy Spirit must come and do his work through his word and reveal uh, our foolishness. And, and we just can't understand it apart from the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4 says, They're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Well, doesn't that explain a lot in the world? You look at the, you know, the things that are going on in our world. Darkened, separated, ignorance that is in them, hardening of hearts, lost all sensitivity, and a continual lust for more. Uh, Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It's there. The truth is there. And yet, you know, the corruption of the sinful nature is just always suppressing it. Doesn't want it to come out into the, to the light. Deeds done in the darkness. It continues, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Another category, this idea of spiritually dead. The epistle lesson, Ephesians 2, spoke about this. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Again, I always like to say, what can, what can a dead man do? You know, uh, nothing. 
So how dare we in spiritual pride talk about how uh, we have done all these things to bring us to bring us to God. No, you're dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now, now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So if anything, Christians who have been called out of darkness and into light should have a great compassion for the, those who are still in the darkness. Because we should realize that we too, we too were part of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We too were disobedient. We too were gratifying. Uh, and this is where you, you see the Apostle Paul just really have the identity of his past uh, always there and how Christ has um, called him out of that. Colossians 2 says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, and this great, you know, what is the subject, what is the verb, and what is the object? God made you alive with Christ. God did it. He made you alive. You're the object of it. You didn't make yourself alive. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, and he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Uh, okay, so here's, here's one of the final ones here. So it's not only bad news, but it's bad news on top of bad news. So we're not only turned away from God, according to the scriptures, we're also turned against him. So we're this rebel race. Genesis 6, and you saw it in uh, the, um, the Old Testament reading, of the, the killing of a brother to a brother. Well, this is the corruption rooted deep now, right? The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Uh, sometimes people call me a pessimist, right? I, they ask me about what I think about this world. And I said, well, you know, if this world is corrupted as the scriptures speak, if every inclination of our heart is evil, that's the default position because of the sinful nature. If the heart is deceitful, Jeremiah 17 says, we have this heart of stone in Ezekiel 36. Um, you know, what should we expect? So I'm not a pessimist, I'm just a realist to say this is what the world is. It is created good by God and corrupted you know, by the evil one. Everything is corrupted. But God is about redeeming it and recreating it in Christ. And you see, you see the pictures of that, uh, Ezekiel 36. You know, I want to give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I want to take away the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Uh, Romans, again, Paul says, We've been justified by his blood. Well, how much more then shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And it declares very clearly, we, we're God's enemies. We're reconciled to him through the death of his son. So, uh, when the Bible speaks about reconciliation, it speaks about us, about us being reconciled to God, but also God being reconciled to us. And apart from Christ, you, only you see an angry God, uh, God's wrath on sin. But in Christ, we see that God is reconciled and that we are reconciled to him because of the righteousness, the good works, the sacrifice of Jesus, our brother. 
Paul says, you know, he's again aware of this. So just become you, because you become a Christian, have faith, doesn't mean like all this goes away. It just means the fight is on. And Romans 7, Paul says, I know that nothing good lives in me. It's still there. The sinful nature is still there. Um, and I desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. So how dare we like stand up like the Pharisee and declare, oh, look how good I've been this week. And, and at least I'm not like that person. Um, and so this crushes spiritual, spiritual pride. I was reading in um, the Lutheran Confessions, um, if you uh, are familiar with them, there's this beautiful section, the uh, one that speaks of uh, justification and the fulfilling of uh, the law and uh, of love. And, um, and it's in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. And it starts off and says this, well, so who loves and fears God sufficiently? Because the law will always accuse us. If we let it do its work, it's not a bad thing. The law is not this horrible word from God. It just tells us, you know, clearly who we are. And so when we who are unrighteous stand and, and hear the righteous law, we like, oh, I don't want to hear that because it's accusing me. Well, this is what it says. So, so who loves or fears God sufficiently enough? Who with enough or sufficient patience bears the afflictions imposed by God? Who does not frequently doubt whether human affairs are ruled by God's counsel or by chance? Who does not frequently doubt whether he be heard by God? Who is not frequently enraged because the wicked enjoy a better lot than the pious? And because the pious are oppressed by the wicked. Who does satisfaction to his own calling? Who lives, loves his neighbor as himself? Who is not tempted by lust? And again, the answer to all of those is, well, there's none of us. Well, here's the good news. There is one who has done it perfectly. Perfectly loved God, perfectly loved the neighbor, perfectly prayed, perfectly fasted, perfectly gave of himself. And this is Romans 3, it says, A righteousness now comes not from ourselves, but a righteousness from God. So it's outside of us. It comes from another one. And it's put on us. Uh, the big words are imputed to us, or declared. We are declared righteous because of another for the sake of Christ. It says, But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which all of the Old Testament law and prophets testify. And this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to, who, to all who believe. And so when it says, by faith, Abel, and by faith, Moses, and by faith, Jacob, and Joseph, and by faith, David, and by faith, Paul, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This is uh, the final um, um thought that I came across um, this week. And again, it's from the Apology. And remember how I, I, I said that the greatest act of worship is um, to run to Christ to receive the forgiveness of sins? And you see it in the, in the tax collector. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So this is what um, the Apology uh, says to the Augsburg Confession, Article 3. Thus, the worship and divine service of the gospel is to receive from God gifts. And on the contrary, the worship of the law is to offer and to present our gifts to God. We can, however, offer nothing to God 
unless we have first been reconciled and born again. The chief worship of the gospel is to wish to receive remission of sins, grace, and righteousness. I mean, there you have it, right? To receive gifts from God, the forgiveness of sins. This is the chief act of worship. And you see it so clearly uh, in the gospel. One has the worship of the law, that the Pharisee there offering and presenting his own gifts to God, and the tax collector, the worship, uh, the divine service of the gospel, running and receiving from God uh, the gifts that come from, from Jesus. So that's Explain It from uh, Genesis chapter 4. Interesting, if you read that this week, uh, Genesis chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 2, and Luke chapter 18. And keep in mind again that uh, the greatest gift uh, is the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, the greatest act of worship is to run to the place to receive that gift. And there you stand like a beggar with open hands, and God pours all these gifts into uh, into your life. So two different ways of worship in the gospel, right, uh, for today. One is I'm offering my own works. The other is God have mercy, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, and you run and uh, like a beggar you open that sack full and there the Lord gives us all good gifts uh, in Jesus uh, our brother. Okay, so um, through the week, uh, take a look at those portions of Scripture, uh, look over them, and I think they will bring you great comfort and great, great joy.